Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. Today I'm in conversation with Dr. Sharon Blackie. At Sharon Blackie on Twitter, that's S-H-A-R-O-N-B-L-A-C-K-I-E and www.sharonblackie.net is a psychologist and mythologist and presenter of the Hedge School podcast, www.sharonblackie.net thehedgeschool.org on the theme of a new folk culture and she's also an award-winning writer of several books including The Enchanted Life, If Women Rose Rooted and The Long Delirious Burning Blue. In this conversation we talk about Sharon's realisation that she was in an, she was unhappy in a corporate role working in London and that it was affecting her mental well-being. Her mother's move to a tiny cottage in rural Wales spurred her to uphaul her life and reconnect with nature. We also explore the impacts on our natural world of the unhappiness and and disconnection that so many of us, including Sharon, have felt. The conversation also touches on how rootedness in place, tradition, nature and feminine values can help us to heal both ourselves and the natural world. In Sharon's view, Western philosophy has played a significant role in the disenchantment with the natural world that we suffer from today. And Sharon also shares the beautiful mythical story of the Selkies, half woman, half seal. And she explains how that can help us to understand the importance of female intuition and wisdom. And I think Sharon's explanation of that story is emblematic of her wider ability throughout this episode to tell beautiful and allegorical stories and anecdotes that contain powerful lessons about our connection to the natural world. I don't think I'll say any more other than to tell you what I usually do at the start of each episode, which is that the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find us online at www.wildvoicesproject.org and at wildvoicesproj on Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. And we're part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers and aspiring environmental professionals. And you can learn more about that global project at wild-voices.org. I think that's everything that I need to say for now. I hope that you're enjoying, at the time of recording this intro at least, what is some fairly beautiful autumn weather and that you're getting out to see some amazing wildlife or enjoy nature yourself. And if not, then hopefully this episode is a spur to do so. Let's dive in. you um i've really really enjoyed over the past week or so delving into some of your writings and although i've read large chunks of some of your books i still feel as if i've only kind of scratched the surface which is a nice feeling in a way (laughs) um although it does leave me feeling slightly underprepared for this for this podcast despite having tons of notes and lots of questions in front of me um oh that sounds amazing to have prepared so much though so um well i try to you know um it's uh i try and try and make sure that I'm prepared to speak to people and particularly when it's a writer it's really lovely to be able to do that because um invariably they're things that I would choose to read anyway um and uh, in fact I think uh I'd already kind of clocked your books um at some point in the past and thought mm, those will definitely have to go on the long list of things that I want to read someday so <laughs> it was nice to have a a motivation to make me to make me go and uh, go and read them um so I want to start with a question that I often that I often start with, which is um, where your interest in the natural world or the environment came from, and whether that was in child in during childhood. And I know you grew up in a fairly industrial part of the northeast of England in your early childhood, at least. And so I was wondering where your connection to wildlife or the environment came from in that in that setting. To be honest, I'm not really sure. Um, it just seems always to have been there. So we lived. Um, 
Uh, yeah, on the industrial fringes of a, a northeastern um, town uh, in England, Hartlepool, when I was very small. And But it was on the fringes. And so, although I could see kind of towering chimneys and ICI chemical factories and steelworks um, on the horizon, uh, we weren't too far from very beautiful, sandy, juny beaches. And I spent a lot of time because I was an only child and my mother was out to work and I was left with a very, very elderly aunt. I spent a lot of time in her garden, which was a complete wilderness at the time, you know, investigating dandelions and caterpillars and whatever came along. So it just seemed that if I didn't have my head stuck in a book, I was always outside. And, you know, as you well know, it doesn't have to be a beautiful wild place for you to feel a sense of connection um, to it. And, and I always had that. And whenever, even though we continued to live in towns and cities, and when I went to university first off in Liverpool, uh, which is a big enough city, I always had a real hankering for um, for wild places and a countryside that I had never really experienced. It just seems always to have been there. Are there any particularly strong memories you recollect of a moment when you were interacting with, with nature or wildlife, it, perhaps in her garden or on the beach or... Um, I think I, do you know, I have a really very strong memory of lots of interactions with caterpillars, butterflies and moths. Uh, they just always seem to be there. They had a wild, um, overgrown cabbage patch. So not surprisingly, there were going to be, you know, lots of butterflies there. And, um, and so I don't remember a particular moment, but I just remember being intrigued by, you know, and just wondering what these creatures were and how they thought, what did they think of what, you know, what, what were they doing? Um, so so it was really more, really more um, that kind of thing than a, than a specific moment. And I grew up on, you know, I grew up on a lot of, um, in an Irish, in a family that had lots of Irish connections. Uh, my father was um, Scottish and his family still lived there, but my mother's family was um, Irish uh, in part. And I grew, I was raised by an Irishman after my parents divorced. But um, so, and, and so all of the stories that I was given from the Irish tradition and all of the music that I was given from the Irish tradition, which I very much grew up on, all seemed very much tied to place, you know. So um, it, uh, it just always seems to have been there. Mm, okay, that's really interesting to hear about the Scottish and Irish family heritage, because that was something I hadn't picked up on in your writings. Um, and it's also interesting to hear that even at an early age, you were asking questions that some of the great philosophers you refer to have asked about creatures. What, you know, what, what are they thinking? And how do they feel? Um, I think well, I, I think a... that was because a, a lot of the, the stories, particularly in the Irish tradition, you know, animals play a big part in those stories, in the mythology, certainly. You have a lot of shape-shifting women, for example, and sometimes shape-shifting men. So the the distinction or the boundary between human and animals is, is, is not very well defined in those stories. And I read all kinds of fairy stories when I was a child where, you know, they were always talking animals. Um, animals had a particular form of wisdom that humans didn't have access to. So I always saw them. Um, I never ever fell into this um, mindset that we were superior to animals. It was just like, gosh, all the stories say that they know things that we don't so that really did have a big impact on on my thinking I think even when I wouldn't have been able to define it you know in in this kind of way hmm. that's definitely a theme I want to return to I just wanted to ask first though um at that age were you also were you doing any writing at that age or was that something that came later it's such a big part of what you do now um I wrote some very bad childish poetry about blackbirds sitting on my windowsill. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, it's one of those things where I never, you know, I was a child in a working class, very working class background. And it wasn't that I was never encouraged to be what I wanted to be, but I never thought that writing was something that people like us did, to be honest. And um, it really wasn't until very much later um, that I started to realise that that really wasn't the case at all. You know, there are a lot of very wonderful working class writers out there and so on. So that didn't come to quite late. But the truth is, I think I always had a very strong sense, although I always wanted to write, that I hadn't really got anything yet to say. Um, and that was very strong all the way through my 30s or 20s and 30s. And it wasn't really until, um, you know, I'd had a, a couple of um, or a very early midlife crisis or two um, in my early 30s that I thought, no, actually, I have got something to say. I have got something to write about. And then it, it kind of started. Yeah, well, I wanted to turn to that next. And it was, it was interesting reading 
those sections of your writing because of because of the age I am. I'm 31, almost 32. So it, it was making me reflect about the stage that I am at my own life. But you write you write very um, very openly about being in a corporate career where you felt disconnected from what's the best way to express it? I suppose disconnected from the values that you wanted to express through your career. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the internal dialogue you were having with yourself at that at that time it it went on forever really um i you know i i studied um uh, i i had an academic career it was short but it was it was fairly um significant in the sense that i had lots of publications i was doing very well uh, but i found the academic world absolutely stultifying and in the particular area that i was in um which is behavioral neuroscience it seemed that the only thing that was valued was was you know the number of publications that you had so it seemed a bit like a machine and i wasn't very happy with it but you know i had uh, um, I wasn't a very confident young woman, and I didn't really know. Um, I didn't really know what to do. It was a little, all a little bit frightening. So I, I fell into a corporate career just because I was in London, and I really needed to earn some money. I needed a job, and I didn't really have in those days. Um, you know, in my early twenties, I just didn't have the imagination for how I could how I could live differently. I knew that I wanted to live differently, but I didn't know how. That, I didn't know what that would look like. You know, my family was fairly conventional. I didn't have any really good role models of people who had lived in, in sort of more alternative ways. So I kind of fell into that and it felt very safe. Um, but there was always something in me that knew that I wasn't happy in it at all. Um, it didn't make any sense to me what I was doing. But you know, you you know what it's like. You um, you get a mortgage, you get a husband, uh, you you have obligations, you have responsibilities, and so you keep going until finally something breaks. Um, and I, throughout those years um, in London and outside of London, when I was uh, when I was in um, the job that I was in, I always had a very very profound longing um, to live in 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 the hills, in the mountains, by the coast, somewhere. Um, I just knew that, that those were my places. And were you drawn to those places at least sporadically during that time you were working? Did you kind of give yourself little <laughs> little tantalising, um, you know, morsels of those places um, that, that I suppose perhaps later spurred you to make a more permanent change? For sure, it was nightmarish. Um, well, what had happened is my mother, um, who you know had always uh, lived in town and cities and um, had been a, a basically a legal secretary, um, she, um, when I was about twenty, I think it was, when I was at university, at some point anyway, she upped and left. We were living in the city of Coventry at the time. She upped and um, sold the house in Coventry because I'd gone, and she moved to Wales. Um, she moved to um, just outside of Machynlleth in um, Mid North Wales, uh, with without a penny you know she founded an old tiny old cottage that she did up and um, she would ride a, a tiny little motorbike over the the mountain passes <laughs> to work every day um, and and I would go there um, during vac- vacations from university and it was just the most astonishing um, place um, you know that was just the the, the, the complete change in um, atmosphere in pace you know all of the things that anybody who ever goes to these places knows I don't need to wax lyrical about that so I only had gone there quite a lot when I when I was young so I was looking at her life which wasn't easy you know she didn't have any money and it was very hard work mm. uh, and comparing it with mine in the middle of London just um, you know in what seemed like nightmarish mad conditions and thinking I really want to be able to do this but as I say I didn't have the imagination I didn't have the imagination I hadn't lived enough to, to know how to do that in a sustainable way, I guess. And um, when you did decide to make a more permanent change, were there were there practical steps that you put in place first? Did you kind of have a plan or was it something that you simply sort of decided on the spur of the moment to do? And if, if it, it was, was if it was the latter would you do it differently today or would you advise someone else to take some practical steps before making that sort of big change? 
Well, it was an interesting thing to me because, you know, I, as I said, I'd grown up on Irish culture, Irish music. <coughs> Excuse me. I had a hankering um, for Ireland that had been intensely strong to go to Ireland, intensely strong. Ever since I'd been a very, very young child, there was just something that was calling to me, and particularly the west of Ireland. And, um, you know, I went to university in Liverpool, for heaven's sake, because there was a ferry across to Dublin. And of course, when I got to Liverpool, they stopped the ferry to Dublin and it didn't <laughs> run anymore. So I never actually made it there. Bizarrely, I don't know why, until I was 30 years old. And when I did, it was instant. It's just like it was like a sledgehammer. It hit me. I could not bear. I could not bear not not to be here. Um, so um, I said to my husband at the time, who um, didn't, he wasn't working. He didn't have any particular infrastructure. I said, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm going. Um, I'm leaving my job and we are going to move uh, to this place. And I don't know how we're going to live. I don't know how we're going to pay the very small loan that we ended up having to have to, to renovate a, a tumbled an Irish cottage, but I've got to do it. So I was tied into a job where I had to give literally a year's notice. <clears throat> so what I did during wow. that year um, is I, I squirreled away every penny that I possibly could. And then and then we moved into a cottage yeah, that wasn't entirely functional at all. Um, but, um, but I just had to be there. Um, so I don't know that I would do it differently. No, because I think sometimes you just have to go with that very strong sense of of, of necessity of no this is my place this is absolutely my place and I can't I can't ignore it anymore and also you know I wasn't doing well in a corporate environment it wasn't healthy mentally um, I was just I was just breaking up into little pieces inside so that this was um, this was the only way to be honest but by virtue of you, you took the decision but by virtue of having to serve a year's notice that at least gave you a little time a little bit of time to save some money and to perhaps plan out some of the more logistical steps um was was yes. there was yes. there anything in particular and i'm sure there are things um what what was it in particular that called out to you about that place and made you so strongly want to want to go and be there i don't know because um we we had gone on holiday there. Um, we'd got spent a week in in Kerry in the southwest of Ireland, which is very very beautiful. Uh, you know, some people would argue that that Kerry is is perhaps the most beautiful part of Ireland. But then we had spent the second week up in Connemara, and it was as soon as we drove into this bizarre, uh, loch-strewn, boulder-strewn, moonish, moonscapish landscape that it just was. It just I don't know what to do. It just it was almost a knot in my stomach. You know, it was almost as if somebody had stuck their hand into my stomach and pulled me and said, here, here. And I'd never seen any landscape like that before. You know, it wasn't a Welsh landscape, for example. There's nothing in England like it. Bits of Scotland like it, but I hadn't really seen them. Um, so I don't know, but it was just instantaneous. And, of course, you know, I had read a, I had read a lot about, about that particular part of Ireland when I was younger um, and the history of Ireland, um, that part of Ireland, the whole, you know, Cromwellian um, sending them to hell or to Connacht and um, uh, so I don't know it was just an instantaneous thing and I do believe you know I, I am a bit mystical when it comes to place admittedly and I do believe that sometimes a, a place just calls out to you um, and says mine you know you're mine uh, you, you, you need to be here um, and you know here I am again uh, after having to leave which is another long story um, 20 years later absolutely completely feeling the same thing mm, yeah I certainly um it certainly rings true for me I I have very deep love of the western isles of Scotland particularly the Isle of Mull um in fact I've uh -huh, just recently right. come back from camping wild camping for a week on Lunga which is one of the Treshnish Isles which is normally completely uninhabited wow. except for when the few of us were camping on there for a week um wow and it's a part of the world that I just absolutely love. And I think and I think you expressed this in your writing as well. Were I to imagine moving to that part of the world, the first thought that comes into my head is it would be amazing, but what what would I do for money and what skills do I have besides what I do for all the types of organizations that are based in mostly the south of England? How did you grapple with, yeah. with that question or that challenge when when you took the decision to move to Ireland. And also, I know you moved to a crofting community in Scotland subsequently as well. 
Yeah, I mean, when I moved to the crafting community in Scotland, that was a, f- a good few years later, and I had I had a few more resources at that point. I had had to leave. It's a long story. It's written about in Women Rose Rooted, but briefly, um, I took a, a husband who was um, considerably older than I was there to Connemara with me, and it it didn't work out well. And you know, in in some ways, for my own safety, I I had to leave, and so I went back temporarily to a corporate life because I had nothing. I'd left the house. I'd left what little we had, um, and I was you know I had nothing. So I I did that. So by the time I I found my way back, um, I went to America uh, for six years. By the time I found my way back, I'd had a few more savings. And so, uh, you know, I was able to um, I was able to just say, okay, I'm going to take the risk for a year. I'd also at that point when I moved to Scotland, done some training. Um, So I had gone back to my psychology roots. I had done some training in creative imagination work in clinical hypnotherapy. And I was able to practice as a therapist for for a little while. Uh, Whereas when we moved to Connemara, when I was 30, I had none of that you know I had I had nothing to do so basically at that point when we moved to Ireland I didn't care I just knew that I had to get out (coughs) excuse me I knew that I had to get out. I knew I had to be there, and I had some sense that you know it does something will come. I'll work in a shop. Um, you know, I didn't really care. I would find something and some way of making it work. And as it happened, I I wasn't there long enough, really. I suppose for for it to be a concern because that was unfortunately I'd only been there a couple of years when I when I had to leave. Okay. I think now it's you know increasingly it's increasingly easy easy for people who again if you have the right skills to work remotely whereas in those days of course you know back in the the early to the mid 90s I mean the internet was still a fairly new thing for for those kinds of um for the for people like us so um I, I think it's a bit easier now but I'm not kind of like underestimating the the, the strength of character and the um the um yeah, the the bravery uh, that it that it takes sometimes to make that kind of leap. Mm, okay, I want to shift gears slightly and ask um, ask what what are the consequences both for our environment or our natural world and for our own well being of the kind of disconnection that you were feeling and that so many people might feel in in those kind of corporate roles or just in their lives more generally and this begins to touch on the distinction between enchantment and disenchantment that you that you that one of your books is about well i think i think the main consequence of it for for most people is that because we don't really we don't we don't because we're not in relationship with it we can't find any way of genuinely loving it um and because we don't genuinely love it we think we do you know we see a pretty picture and we think oh isn't that nice yes i love to go to wales or i love to go to here and there but but we don't love the land we don't love the natural world in the same way as we would love another human being um and because of that we don't really see it as as quite as valuable as you know we often see another human being and when you don't love something you don't really feel responsible for it either you know it's it's kind of like not your problem so you might see some you know you might feel some vague sense of sadness at seeing the decline of butterflies or moths in um in in uh, the countryside but you don't feel that as something that's um that that's that's really um a big grief um that you know in in that sense and so i i think i think that that sense of not having responsibility for the natural world is is a big consequence of of our disconnect i think also um the fact that we're just literally not grounded uh, literally grounded in in place in in the natural world anymore means that we just have such a strong sense of alienation, a strong sense of not belonging to the world, of not knowing what it's all for. This life, um, and and that's why we see, I think, such a strong sense of of lack of rootedness, of rootlessness in um in the in the world today, and in, in young people particularly today. Um. I want to come back to a lot of those themes, but I just wanted to ask as well. Um, it seems to me, at least, that this is something which um, is common across many different parts of our society and different institutions, and it seems that it's increasingly um, pervasive in our politics. I was I, I thought of this question because I was just catching up on on uh, last night's episode of Newsnight before speaking to you this morning. So it seems that, particularly in the UK, whilst we've worked very closely within the UK across 
borders and boundaries and with our European partners across borders and boundaries for the last few decades, we're becoming increasingly adversarial or tribal in our relationships um, and that's taking that's being manifested through our politics and yet environmental problems are ones that disregard those borders and boundaries and require that cooperation so I was wondering if you have any reflection on on the impact that that lack of rootedness that lack of connection is having on our politics and in turn what that means for the environment I suppose it's not so much on 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 specifically on on politics it's something I tend to steer clear of um but in general I think we we walk a very very fine line between that sense of you know rootedness to our place to our tribe and globalization and mm. you know both extremes um tribalism and globalization both extremes can have their problems but I I tend to look at it this way which is that if you don't have a strong sense of belonging to any place at all what do you have to offer the wider world it's kind of like you know it's the classical and I am a psychologist so forgive it it's a classical cliche about relationships if you don't know yourself how can you be in a healthy relationship with somebody else so um, my sense of of needing to be to really know some place um, is not in order to you know build a wall around it and confine yourself in it but so that you know what to bring to to the wider world and I think that's something that we've lost and when I, I should I should be clear that when I talk about um, rootedness and knowing a place I don't mean necessarily living for 40 years in the same place mm. that's lovely uh, but not all of us are, are fit to do that um, my own life for example I, I seem to have moved around more than I would have wanted to but I always call myself a serial rooty you know wherever I go <laughs> I'm trying very very deeply to 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 know that place to understand that place and I think that also is something that we've lost because we've become very picky and um, we say oh you know I, I won't be here for very long or I don't really like this place or I'll 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 make a proper relationship with the place when I find the right one and it's just like well your feet are planted in the place where you are living you know you're breathing the air um, that place where you are whether you think you're going to be there forever or not whether you love it or not is giving you life and and I think our places deserve more of us you know we have to we have to root ourselves where we physically are and if we start taking that as a um, as a given um, and we begin to to learn the stories of our place we begin to learn the ecology of our place uh, the geology of our place nobody thinks of geology these days and what's under our feet literally then again you have you have a different perspective you have a, a more heartful perspective to take out into the wider world and a sense of, of what is at stake if we don't um, do something about it I'm not sure I've answered your question, but <laughs> that's that's what came to mind. <laughs> no, but it was a, it was very good. It was a, it was a politician's answer in that you answered the question you wanted to answer rather than the one that, the one that I posed, <laughs> which is a good skill to have. Um, and I completely respect wanting to steer clear of politics. I suppose um, for me, because I work well, in, it's not, it's... I, I was just going to say for me because I work in environmental policy. Um, what I was partly trying to do in my head was think about how everything I was reading that you'd written might function in the sphere that I work in. But I think it's about thinking of whether they're civil servants or politicians or members of the government. It's about thinking about them not just in their job role, but as human beings and as people who might also benefit from and change their perspective on policy if we all had a bit more of the connection you're you're calling for or advocating for yeah i mean the, the reason why i steer clear of it is 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 not you know uh, for no other reason than than that i find i find it all very depressing and i mm. don't think the answers are going to come from there um i don't yeah. think the answers are going to come from environmental activism i don't think they're going to come from politicians i think they're going to come from the bottom up and mm. so it's it's really a lack of interest in the political solution because i do not believe that it is that's a terrible thing to say to somebody who i know works with it but from from my perspective uh, kind of like on the edges um, of Ireland, I think that the solution to something this big can only come from the edges, you know, in, in, in hard times. Uh, that's where it comes. It comes from people making different choices. It comes from people making walking away from the system. It comes from people refusing 
to buy their vegetables in plastic. It doesn't come from the politicians down. So that to me um, is where it comes from. If we all had a sense, as you say, if we all had a, a sense of, of this really mattering, then we would not elect politicians um, who were going to behave in this way. But, I, you know, to me, that's a very, very long way off. I'd like to think that it wasn't. It's a long way off. And in the meantime, the focus of my own work and, the, and my own energy is very much on um, on encouraging people to see the magic in the land, in the places, so that they want, you know, they, they want to change things from the bottom up. Mm, yeah. Um, I'm glad that you used the word magic. That moves me on seamlessly to my next to my next question, which is I was wondering if you could elaborate <laughs> a little bit more about the, the distinction between enchantment and disenchantment and maybe the definition of what you mean you mean by that. And I particularly enjoyed the section in, in your book about enchantment where you talk about it meaning singing into yeah, that's the um, that's the original definition of of, um, of the word enchantment, um, encantare, literally singing into, which I think is a very beautiful um, idea because it it it, um, it just makes it sound as if the world is singing itself into you, into the heart of you. And I, 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 that captured my imagination greatly. But, you know, I, we tend to stick clear these days of words like magic because they've 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 come to have such often very silly connotations or childish connotations. But my cons- the other uh, another concern I have about our disenchantment, what I call our disenchantment, our disconnection from the world, is that we don't we don't see anything anymore. We don't have a sense of 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 the land as being sacred. Um, you know, these are words that that we're very cautious a lot of us um, about using. Uh, we don't uh, that sense of loving the land, that sense of holding it as something sacred, as holding it in trust, is something that that we don't we don't seem very comfortable with anymore. We're a society that has lost any sense of the sacred. You know, conventional religion, thankfully, um, is losing its hold, but we're not replacing it with anything. And I think that's what uh, Max Weber, a, a German sociologist back in the 1930s, was I think the first one to use the word disenchantment in that context. It's just that we don't see anything as really mattering beyond ourselves as humans. So to me, enchantment is very much about finding the magic um, in our relationship with the land, with the myths and the stories of the land, with the reality of the creatures on it, with this this sense of our place in the world. Um, so it's very much, so it's not anything, enchantment to me is absolutely and furiously not um, anything that takes place inside your head. It's about getting out there. Uh, it's a very deeply embodied sense of belongingness to the world it's literally singing yourself back into the land so that you know where your place is and we've already touched on this slightly um when we mentioned at the beginning about philosophers and their questioning of um of how do animals think and feel um and in in your book about this topic the enchanted life you write about how in part western philosophy is response particularly the enlightenment philosophy i suppose the the honing down of rationalism um, and scientific evidence is responsible for this disenchantment that we've undergone. Um, so maybe you'd like to say a little bit more about that. But I also had quite a specific question, which is that in that narrative you trace through from Greek philosophy through, um, through I suppose, the Renaissance and then into Western European Enlightenment philosophy, I was wondering what role you thought the romantics played in that and whether they they had a slightly different role and whether they managed to recapture some of that enchantment because they were a group of writers who, um, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, who I don't think featured in that narrative that you traced. No, they didn't. Um, and really because I suppose I was trying to focus on on how it had all gone wrong, um, and that mm, to me yeah. was very much about about Western philosophy, um, and maybe I should have spent some more time um, talking about the Romantics. As as poets, I don't enjoy the British Romantic poets very much, to be honest. That's mm. not so. I don't think they were very wonderful. Um, it's just not to my taste. On the other hand, some of the German Romantics, I I, I do uh, Holderlin and and what have you, I do find um, a lot more to my taste. They're a little bit more ecstatic, I suppose. I don't know. I really don't know what that is. It is all a matter of taste. Um, but 
but I think uh, you know I I I grew up in an um, or I, I at school I had an all arts background, um, so it was very much about literature. That was my love. Literature was always my great love at school. But I was told I couldn't get a proper job um, if I if I did a <laughs> English literature degree, and I should really I should really do something better. So I studied psychology instead, and it was an intensely scientific um, subject. Um, very. Uh, Mostly because it's you know by definition it's such a such a subjective, um, such subjective issues that you're talking about. So you have to approach them very 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 carefully. So it was a very rigorous education in lots of ways, and it was very fine, uh, but it was a completely disenchanting uh, process as well. So I had this I always had this curious schism you know where my my original training my original love was in the arts, and then I I got this very very scientific background. Uh, and training uh, superimposed on top of that, which for many years wiped it out. You know, it was so intense. We couldn't even say words like mind um, without, you know, um, people making the sign of the cross in front of us. It was just kind of like, you know, oh my goodness, you can't see a mind. You know, you can't cut it open with your scalpel. That's that's magical thinking. So, so it was a curious um process but it but it really did help me see uh what in the years when i i started to claw my way back out of that um particular way of looking at the world which didn't take long really because i always loved fairy stories um it was a really good it really helped me to see the process of how what for me had happened in a few short years had happened to the civilization um over the centuries um and how I was taught that, you know, even the mind I could not talk about because I couldn't physically see it. A brain was okay because you could cut it open, you know, you could look at it and say, oh, there you go, that's a brain, but a mind you couldn't see. And it's like, that is really, I suppose, what is what has happened to us. You know, we're not allowed to believe in anything that we can't see. Uh, and so we can't see, for example, what is going on inside a crow's head. So we assume that a crow is just a product of its behavior. It just flaps its wings and squawks a lot and there's nothing else going in there. But I was sitting there thinking, yeah, but, you know, I know all of these stories about a about crows and the mythology of crows and and there's this whole body of um of, of myth and um folklore in ireland where um crow is a you know associated with women with um various goddesses like the morrigan um and a crow is a, a bird that women often shapeshift into so we know a lot about the mythology of a crow and i was sitting there thinking yeah but what is the crow seeing when it looks at me you know what is the mythology from the crow's point of view where do i fit uh, the crow sees me you know does it see a god um, and so I was asking all of these kind of questions, which everybody else thought were really strange. But but to <laughs> me, those are the questions that we really need to ask, because those are the ones that really help us to, to, to get perspective on our place in the world. It's like, that, you know, the crow, as I said in those old fairy stories, the crow has a wisdom. And this process of disenchantment where we can only talk about what we can see, what we can objectively measure um, is, is such a loss, I think. Were there, particularly when you when you moved out of that corporate environment, were there any particular places or perhaps rituals that you developed for yourself that helped you to recapture that sense of enchantment? Um, I went and, well, we lived near a, a river, um, uh, which um, was at the base of the, the Marmturk Mountains uh, here in Connemara. And I would go and I would talk to the river. Um, I would tell it all of my problems. I would um, sing to it somehow. I, I kind of developed a relationship with a river because I had a, as I said, a slightly mad husband who who was on a completely different path at that time, and I didn't really feel that I had anybody else to talk to. So I kind of, I, I kind of talked myself into a relationship with the land, literally, just out of some sense of I've got to talk to something. I've got to tell somebody. I've got, you know, I've got to, mm. uh, I've got to build a relationship somewhere. So I think that process of of being in conversation with with the land was was one of the ways where i really began to get a sense of what i mean by relationship it is it is reciprocal relationship you know it's kind of i and i felt yeah i felt that the river in some peculiar way was 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 listening um that that in that therefore it was just like having a a relationship with a person and i began to value it more um so it, it wasn't any particular um, anything more than that, really? Just seeing seeing aspects of the natural world as 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 things to be as things to be spoken to, sung to, to be in relationship with. Mm. And through um, through your book, if women rose rooted, you tie together this 
importance of connection with the land and with nature with the importance of rediscovering a connection both with ancient uh what's the best way of putting it i suppose ancient roots or ancient traditions ancient stories in particular as well and the feminine too and i was wondering maybe if you could say a little bit more about that and perhaps perhaps maybe briefly through the the story of the selkies which i really enjoyed your retelling of in that book yeah i think um in a world of, of disenchantment, nevertheless, a lot of people are looking for ways to, to re-enchant themselves and to reconnect themselves. And certainly, you know, I was talking about the lack of the, the sacred um, or some, some sense of the sacred um, or some meaningful spiritual tradition uh, for, for those who can't find it in kind of like the standard organized religions that have been so much part of the problem. There are a lot of people seeking. But what happens in this part of the world is nobody has a sense that, that it comes from here. Everybody thinks that they've got it elsewhere. You know, so uh, there's a tendency to to look to, to the East, to, to Buddhism or um, other practices for that kind of wisdom um, or um, to look to Native American uh, wisdom, you know, other indigenous communities around the world. And I felt very strongly, um, having had this um, immersion in my own native stories since I was very, very small, that actually we had it here. And I, I couldn't really understand why people weren't looking for it here and seeing that the wisdom of the old stories um, in in countries like Ireland, Scotland and in England, too, although it's less easy to find them uh, in England for for reasons I won't go into now um, the, these were actually telling us the same thing you know as the stories of indigenous people around the world they were all about living in balance and living in harmony with with the land and because we had downgraded them so profoundly and just thought of them as, as fairy stories for kids uh, we weren't seeing them in the same way that other native um, uh, people see their stories and so that was really the inspiration for, for writing If Women Rose Rooted it was like no the stories that we need that show us ways, different ways of being in the world, different ways of connecting with our places, come from right here under our feet. And, you know, I do very profoundly believe that you have to be grounded in the place where your feet are. So we have to find our stories here. And I was taken, um, very taken with, with the idea also, which is certainly part of, of many um, uh, Native American people's lore, that um, that in the in the Irish tradition, particularly, and, and the wider Celtic tradition, to a less to a lesser degree, um, women are profoundly associated with the land. You know, they are literally the voices of the land. They're imminent in the land. Um, every river had a goddess. Every well, um, they they were female characters. And I thought that particularly in the West, when when women had been dispossessed of our stories and our voices for so many centuries, that it was a bit of a double whammy. <laughs> you know, you get your stories of the land back. Um, and your native traditions back, but you also get this sense of no, we were we were important once. You know, we had voices once that mattered. So that's really what what if women rose rooted was about. And the story of the selkie, um, which is the story, um, I'm sure most people would know it, but very briefly, it's the story of a, a um, seals who can become human, um, who can become women. Usually, the stories go it's once one, um, one night um, at the full moon. Um, one night and every month at the full moon and they slip off their seal skins and they become women and the selkie story is the story of a woman a group of sisters who are dancing on the beach having slipped off their seal skins and um, the seal skin of one of them is stolen by a very lonely fisherman who wants one of these women for for his wife and so he steals her skin and she lives with him for seven years and then eventually it is found in some way or another depending on the particular variant of the story that you're that you're dealing with and I think for, for many women that is such a profound story I've never known anybody not be very moved by it that sense that we lost our sense of who we are over centuries you know we lost this sense of of mattering um, in any meaningful way we lost the sense of having something unique to say we lost that female wisdom which is very much about creativity whatever kind of creativity it might be which is very much about intuition um, that that it, these are qualities that we bring naturally to the world but they don't seem to be valued so much as the, the the rational intellectual scientific values so that story i think that but the metaphor of, of losing literally losing your skin and then what it means to regain it and the journey to regaining it um i think is a very very profound one for for women yeah and it was 
I agree, it was certainly a very moving story to read myself, and it was particularly poignant as well. Um, again, returning to that trip that I've just been on to the Treshnish Isles, falling asleep every night in my tent to the sound of the wailing of the seals, which is in part where that myth of the seals being um, being metamorphosing creatures comes from, I think, is from the wailing noises, the, the singing that they used to make during during the night. So it's particularly poignant to read that, having only got back from, from Treshnish a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that was... Yeah, that, that was really lovely. Um, yeah, there's there's a sense to me in which um, in which you write about changing our changing our skins um, and your own process of of finding new skins, and that that seems to tie into um, or to be associated with rewriting stories as well. And I was wondering whether whether it's reconnecting with ancient roots or reconnecting with the land and nature, or with feminine values that are important. I was wondering what you think are the spaces or places in our individual lives, but also in our communities, where we can, um, where we can begin or initiate that activity of individually or collectively rewriting, and I put the re in brackets there, narratives that will help us to reconnect and perhaps to heal some of the wounds whether they're the wounds to ourselves or the wounds to the land that we've created it's difficult to say you know what specific environments people can do this in because so much depends on what's available to them but i i think that everybody can can work with stories um as an individual when whether you can then bring it to a group or not is 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 something separate but when i was when I was when I had moved to Scotland, back to Scotland from America, and I was practicing as a psychologist, I specialised in narrative because that was all, that had always been my love. So, working with story to produce transformation or to help people see different solutions to help them imagine new ways of being in the world, um, and you know, it was the most profoundly transformative methodology I had ever come across. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy, very fine in certain ways, but it isn't going to capture somebody's imagination. So if you can capture somebody's imagination, you've got them. You know, the transformation process has already begun. And stories just, they just never fail. I know that's a very sweeping statement, but they just never fail. So so to me, what we need, what we very much need to do in a culture that's that's lost all sense of, where we've lost all sense of who we are and what matters and what is sacred and what and what what might change is you need to capture people's imagination so that they can literally reimagine themselves in the world and literally reimagine the world into being. And so that's why I think that stories are so important for men and women. I happen to have focused on if, if women are in if women are rooted on women's stories, but men's stories are just as important here too. And so it's that process of of um, of looking at what they're saying. Um, because to me, stories come very much from the land. You know, they're 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 from the land. And again, it sounds slightly mystical, perhaps, to say it. But I I always remember uh, many many years ago coming across the the work of a Jungian um, post Jungian psychologist, James Hillman, who was an American uh, psychologist. And he he had this lovely quote that you know we think that we are we think that psyche or soul is inside us. But actually, we are in psyche. We are in soul. We're in. We are kind of in the soul of the world, the anima mundi, a very ancient concept. And um, his view, uh, which ties back to the view of ancient um, Islamic um, Sufi philosophers, is that actually those stories that we think we make up in our own heads, typical way of thinking these days isn't it we think we make everything up we think everything is about us in some way they have an independent existence uh, and they happen to us the stories happen to us if we're fortunate so to me the whole process of, of working with story in this way is in, it, it's kind of like finding the stories or letting the stories find you that are that are going to bring you the spark of, of imagination and that could be something yes it could be it could be the plot of a story that particularly captures your imagination it could be an image in a story that just 
you know, stays with you and, and won't let you go. But whatever it is, these stories are kind of bridges. I always think of them as bridges between us and the natural world. They're kind of connectors. They help us to see what the unique wisdom of a crow might be. You know, we have to know crow as well. We have to know that it's a bird and that it has certain behavioral characteristics and, and it's important, you know, not to be too magical in our thinking. There is a there is an animal there, um, but it also, it, it the, the stories of, of a crow can uh, can help us can help us bridge back to a sense of belonging to a sense of the world as as enchanted as as magical as sacred as wonderful as as something that we haven't really discovered yet does that make sense i think so i'm trying to formulate a thought or a question in my head and it's something to do with um it's interesting that you use the word bridging it's something to do with the fact that the word metaphor means literally to to carry over mm-hmm. And in my head, when I yeah. first learned that the word metaphor meant to carry over, I sort of imagined in my head something something almost magical happening, like the meaning being picked up, magically lifted across a gap or an ocean, yeah. and then being dropped down on the other side, um, where it became <clears throat> where it became something else, but at the same time remained the same. So I think it's interesting that you use the word bridging because um, because I agree. I think in some ways stories are um in a sense the stories whether they're you know whether they're very short sentence long things or whether they're long parables or or narratives are neutral and it's the meaning that's put into them that can be either harmful or damaging or helpful and nourishing and re and reconnecting um uh I'm not really sure where I'm going with this thought. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a no, question at no, the end of it. No, you, well, there's, there's a discussion to be had about it, maybe. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I suppose to clarify, uh, if I can maybe just, just offer an example mm. um, of, a, of a story that that kind of did that for me. So when I was a child, I absolutely loved the story um, of the wild swans, which is a grim story. It also mm. appears in various stories um, around the world. And this is of a, uh, a woman whose brothers, a young girl, who rather, whose brothers are turned into swans by the archetypical wicked stepmother. And the only way that she can save them is that she has to go and gather stinging nettles from a graveyard at midnight and, you know, with her bare hands and she must weave yarn from the stinging nettles um, and she must weave a shirt for each of the brothers. And if she casts the shirt over the brothers, they'll be transformed back into men. But as well as the pain of picking and and um, working with stinging nettles, she's got to do this in silence. Um, and uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, she's almost burnt at the stake as a witch. She manages just as the the fire is being lit under her. Her brothers swoop in as swans, and she throws the shirts over them, uh, and they're transformed back into men again, all but one, because she hasn't finished his shirt and. Um, the last brother remains half man, half swan. Now that, to me, as a child, was just such an absolutely amazing. The power of the images, and I can't even necessarily tell you anything specific because it it goes beyond words and it goes beyond rationalization. But when I see a nettle now, I see something absolutely magical. A nettle can be made into a shirt that transforms you. It's not just like some weed. You know, now nettle's very useful. You can make nettle soup. You can make nettle tea. It's a very fine plant. It's great for butterflies and for insects but it also has this magical kind of connotation so i value a nettle all the more because it has this sense of mystery and possibility whenever i see a swan i think of that fascinating thing where this guy is just stuck in in some limbo half man half animal and what it would mean to be half animal to you know to see the world as a swan so what that story does apart from the fact that it's a beautiful story it's very entertaining is it opens up this whole perspective of wondering about the world and wondering about what it would be to be a nettle what it would be to be a swan so that's what i mean by a bridge it kind of carries us yes it carries us across some some very very wide river um that just opens up the world to to our imagination and it that that story in particular which again i read in um is it in the enchanted life you put that story i think it is um and in one of your one of your talks as well i've seen you recite the story that story really captured my imagination as well and it draws attention to the young woman in the story who has to endure being silent and that inability to speak or to express her story in any way um, during that period of silence is something that she has to go through as an endurance, as a kind of trial. So it draws attention to the 
importance of being able to express ourselves and having that taken away as being something that we we have to endure um mm-hmm. i th- i think i think the thought that i was trying to get out a little bit before as well is that stories in a sense are a little bit like habitats or ecosystems as well in both the sense that animals can inhabit them but also we can um create nourishing vibrant healthy flourishing stories and narratives for ourselves or we can create negative um harmful poor environments through the stories that we tell ourselves so in a sense to me they're a little bit like the habitats or the ecosystems that they also reconnect us with Indeed. And stories are, you know, stories are never static. They're not supposed to be static. And we have fallen into this way of thinking, I think, because, again, of, of formalized religion, you know, where where we have been told, um, um, certainly I was told when I grew up that, you know, the Bible was written 2000 years ago and that's it now. End of story. Story mustn't change. You know, story is what it is. Um, uh, and uh, literally, end of story. And and so we've got used to seeing stories as fixed and and static. And um, you know, that's just a way of thinking that that we've been brought brought we've brought with us. Uh, but stories do change. They change with the times. They change with people. You know, we don't live like our ancestors did two thousand years ago. So the old myths are very very interesting and contained a lot of wisdom that our ancestors had that that we probably don't anymore. But nevertheless, you know, they have to be relevant to to the to the world now so i think we have to see them yes an ecosystem is a lovely way of putting it uh, we have to see it as an ecosystem that is changing uh, that is adapting um, that has new creatures popping in and out of it um, as the world changes they're alive stories are alive you can't you know you can't you can't confine them mm, absolutely um okay just to wrap up i wanted to um change gear again slightly and uh the first of the last few questions that I wanted to ask was for people who, like myself, already interact quite a bit with the natural world. Um, what what practical ways can we take, uh, what practical things can we do to change or to modify that interaction in order to become connected with it in a different way and perhaps not permanently, but perhaps just to create a little bit of space for the kind of connection that you're describing because for me that's quite different from when I go out with my (laughs) laden with my binoculars and my telescope and my camera and I go twitching for example that's quite a different way of communing with the natural world than, than perhaps what we've spoken about yeah and I said you know and I I think that's a very, very valuable thing. I think to to know the ecosystem properly is is um, is is really very important, and it's it's a skill that a lot of people don't have. But I think there are layers on top of that, which again, and I'm probably going to sound like a broken record again because it it, it is very much about story and the imaginal. Um, and to me, there there are two kinds of stories of 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 place. There are the the old ones, you know, the the stories which um, already come from a place that the folklore um, of a particular environment of a particular landscape you know what creatures inhabit it what archetypal creatures inhabit it what animals appear in all of the stories and why and what does that tell you about the behavior of those animals what does it tell you about the interaction between people and those animals and the way that they play a role in in um in in um, in our culture, um, what do the old stories tell you about the wisdom of a crow? So that there's kind of like the the old stories that already exist. I think can often help you to see a, an animal or a feature of the landscape um, in a in a new way, which is layered on top of of the particular knowledge that you have. And then there's also kind of like you know the stories that you yourself create by by being in a place. Because again, as I said, you know no place. The stories of a place are never static. They're also always growing and transforming by uh, by the people who live in them uh, and the things that they bring. So, so if you you know, uh, one of the examples that I, I use in the Enchanted Life is um, is of of uh, living in a place where for the first time there were there were there was a heronry at the back of our house and and suddenly seeing a heron sh- flying up from the river one morning. And it shrieked like an old woman. Uh, and so I had this sense of a, uh, a character came into my head that was half heron, half woman. And I called her old crane woman because in Irish mythology, crane and heron are sort of interchangeable. And then there was like this whole character so that I saw a heron very clearly. I know about heron. You know, I know what they are. I know how they live. I know their behavior. Uh, but 
but it was as if the heron had then something else to offer in an imaginal sense. So it's very difficult to talk about these things in a very specific way in a, you know, in a, a two minute answer to a question rather than in a, you know, I don't know, a three day workshop or whatever. But, <laughs> but to me, it's very much about, it's very much about layering the imaginal on top of, um, on, on top of the, um, the, the detailed knowledge and seeing what that means to you. Also questioning, you know, again, I, I'm just, briefly going to harp on about geology the, the the ground under our feet you know there are many archetypal qualities of 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 the the ground under our feet and very uh, very seldom do people look at whether they're living on granite or whether they're living on chalk and what that means you know not just from from the, the um, ecology and the ecosystem in a place but what qualities that has what does it say to you about how it's possible to be in those places it's kind of like developing a sense of the spirit of a place isn't it the old the old notion of the spirit of place which is a you know a function of its ecosystem a function of the stories that inhabit it it's it's almost like a personality of a place so i suppose that's what i would be encouraging people to to try and and look at and I was um, struck by your mention, I think, in The Enchanted Life of finding a sit spot. And I don't know if you're familiar with the writer Claire Thompson, who's written the books um, The Art of Mindful Bird Watching and the uh, Mindfulness in the Natural World. Um, she no, also, I'm not. She also picks up on this idea of finding yourself a sit spot, um, which I now try and do. There's a small woodland nature reserve not far from where I live, um, and there's a there's a particular spot by a particular tree by the brook that runs through that nature reserve where I try, not often enough, but I try and go and just occasionally take a little bit of time to sit and wait and just see what happens and be with my own thoughts. And sometimes in bird terms, nothing happens, but that doesn't matter because when I'm in that sit spot, it's not necessarily about seeing the birds. Um, it's about something else. Mm. Yeah, I think that's just a that's a that's a a practice, um, and we're we're not good at we're not often we're not good at craftsmanship. You know, in any sense, we want everything now. We want to know now what a place is, and you can't. It, it's like a, I always call it an apprenticeship to place. We've lost that sense of apprenticeship these days, haven't we? We want everything at once, and you have to apprentice yourself to place in order to to be able to hear its stories, in order to be able to really interact with it in any kind of imaginal way. And and yeah, just sitting and sitting somewhere day after day through all the weathers, all the seasons, uh, ideally at different times of day too, um, is a way. Of of just knowing, of getting a sense of the that you know the spirit of the place, the personality of the place, and all of the things that are in it, and and what might be possible. Mm. Yeah, that's really nice. Okay, um, a couple of slightly different questions to finish. Um, the first is just about your your writing, and I'm sure a lot of the well, I know that a lot of my peers, particularly younger peers in their twenties or thirties, who are interested in environment, wildlife conservation, are are aspiring writers or certainly have the ambition one day to write. I was wondering if you've got anything you want to share about A, how how you came to be a writer and that process of getting published, but B, also the ritual of sitting down every day to write and whether there's anything in particular, any particular practice that you go through to prepare yourself for, for writing or whether you do it at a particular time of day every day. Um, I am very much a morning person, so I cannot write in the afternoons. You know, I'm at my best probably at 5.30 in the morning, which means I go to bed like, you know, like a child at a ridiculously early um, amount of time. So I think that's just, uh, whereas I know, you know, I know other people who are at their best and their sharpest mentally uh, in the middle of the night. So I think I, I, I would say to, to the extent that you can go Go with the the flow of your own body, you know. Go 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 with it rather than. I mean, not everybody can, of course. If you've got a job that requires you to be in specific places at specific times, and I very much admire the people who can snatch half an hour here and there uh, and produce great works of art. I have to have, as my husband says, all of my pencils sharpened and neatly lined up before I can even <laughs> think about it. I I have to get myself into that kind of imaginal um, zone. It's almost a kind of meditational practice, I suppose, uh, where I just have to be able to be quiet and to sit and then and then the the words and the, and the stories come but but I think the, the, the one of the main things that I I do feel very strongly is again that sense of, of apprenticeship to a craft because a lot of people I find today who who want to to be writers um, and have something to say and have a voice even um, are often a little bit sniffy about about 
um, honing, you know, grammar and um, uh, punctuation and all of these kinds of things. And uh, certainly when I have taught writing and I don't do it any anymore, um, it's not something that people are very open to, that idea that, you know, you might actually correct a sentence or say, you know, the structure of your sentence, the actual craft of your writing is something that you really need to practice for a long while uh, before you can talk about being a writer and think about being published. Um, so I think that that is something, maybe again, it's the sense of people wanting to rush to a conclusion, you know, to um, to rush to have something published early. Um, but I would say take that time, take the time to discover how a beautiful sentence is constructed. I mean, every big publisher will have a, a copy editor that will help you out here and there, but they're not going to rewrite, you know, entire sentences for you. So, yeah, focus on focus on the, the shining image that you want to convey to the world, but learn your craft as well. Um, that that I think is is key. You know, the the writers that we all love are the ones who have the perfectly honed sentence, don't they? Who who have a way of being able to express something that only they could have expressed, and it's so beautiful. Uh, and that to me is the heart of of a good writer. It's focusing on on the sentence structure as well as the image and and the idea. I certainly. Um... That sounds great. Sorry, that's sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I. That sounds very boring. I was going to say, but it's actually quite quite necessary. Boring, but you're right. Well, not not boring, but it sounds boring, but very important as well. And I agree. And it really um, it really bears fruit. And it was something that I noticed in your writing as I was going along reading it. Um, there was both uh, the more the more that I read, there was a very clear style of your writing that came across. And I'm going to struggle to put that into words, but there was your style of writing began to feel more and more familiar and distinctive which was nice and secondly I was picking up on not just the overall narrative but there are also lots of individual sentences where um, you know you weren't just writing about the topic or recounting your experience of moving from a corporate life to a to a more reconnected life there were individual sentences where I noticed and appreciated the structure of the the sentence and the interplay between the words in that sentence so it certainly bears fruit in your writing um in my experience of reading it thank you and it's a big a big topic which you don't have time to cover but again you know the relationship between language and the land also interests me very much and i think that mm. if you are with the land in a particular way then in some ways that's singing into again it isn't it? in some ways it just there's a natural rhythm of, of a particular landscape perhaps that that can if you're open to it flow out in your writing mm-hmm Okay, my final question is one that I often ask, um, which is if you could put a message, maybe it's a quote from someone else or maybe a message from yourself on a, on a billboard for thousands or millions of people to see, um, what might that message be? Heavens above, that's impossible, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> gosh, do you know, I... I... I do not know. But you know what? I'll tell you what I have. I have one here. Why don't I just tell you that? Um, I don't know where it came from. I have a laminated postcard, which I think I probably bought in a cathedral somewhere, curiously. And I don't know whose words it is, um, but but it sounds a little bit Julian of Norwichy. Um, but anyway, I'll read this out to you because I, I have this. It's the only quote that I have um, around my desk. OK, so it says, be still. You do not have to look for anything. Just look. You do not have to listen for specific sounds. Just listen. You do not have to accomplish anything. Just be. And in the looking, the listening, the being, find me. Well, I'm sure that that in some sense, if I think I probably did buy it in a cathedral, might be a kind of like, you know, you find God, find me might be you mm. find God. But but to me, God is nature. It's uh, the, it's, the, it's the natural world that's sacred. It's that sense of, of, of magic, of belonging. So I suppose it would be that we strive so hard. We strive so hard to be something that we think we ought to be or to write something that we think we ought to write. And, and we don't just stop and let it happen to us. We're constantly trying to inflict ourselves on the world. Uh, we're blundering in everywhere and we don't just stop and, and let the world happen to us. And I suppose, yeah, let, let the world happen to you might be a, a way of um, condensing that. Mm, that's really nice. Okay, I think that's a really lovely note to, to wrap up on. Is there anything else that you wanted to say or that I haven't asked about? 
No, it's been a really, really interesting conversation. I really appreciate the the time that you've taken to to delve into uh, the stuff that I've I've been saying and writing about because you've asked some questions I don't often get asked. So that was a real pleasure. Thank you. Good. Yeah, and thank you so much for your time. And it's been a real pleasure delving into your writing. And um, I certainly haven't got through it all, but I need, I'm going to carry on reading through it for for the enjoyment <laughs> because I'm glad that it's finally spurred me to start start discovering it and enjoying it. So thank you very much, oh, Sharon. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.